If you have your Bibles, open them, please, to Luke um, chapter 6. And this week is really um, just a continuation of last week. So if you were here with us last week, uh, buckle up, right? Um, the scripture we read last week uh, is immediately before this one, okay? And I guess since Jesus was already saying really challenging, difficult things, he just decided to keep going. Um, so after telling those who would follow him um, that they must be the kind of people who love their enemies and pray for those who persecute him, uh, he then goes on to say this in Luke 6, verses starting in 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice there's a log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your eye? You hypocrite, actor on a stage. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to clearly take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your mercy would become real to our hearts today uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we would be relieved from the burden of policing the universe, that we'd begin to uh, trust you today, God, in ways prior to today we've not been able to trust you. God, help us to trust you, that you are overwhelmingly merciful to us, and that you will one day judge in righteousness and equity. In Jesus' name, amen. This is one of the teachings of Jesus that is so practical. <laughs> so relatable that we often don't know how to fit it into our theology and doctrine. Because we can usually keep a safe distance between our actual life and our theology and doctrine, right? In order to maintain our own personal attitudes and behaviors. But when Jesus starts talking like this, the distance between theology and actual living crash together. <laughs> in ways that for us are quite uncomfortable, honestly, right? So it's fitting that the first thing we point out here is the common dissonance, right, between our theology and our actual living. Because for many, this particular teaching is like a monkey wrench in the gears of their theology. They can't make sense of it, right? The way we judge others, God will judge us. Aren't we saved? from the judgment of God in Christ. Isn't that the whole gospel, right? 
Don't we believe God's grace can overcome any sin, whether it's lying or cheating or judging or murder or theft or lust or hate? Don't we believe that? Isn't that the gospel? Yes and amen. All of these things are nothing compared to the power of God, right? But according to Jesus, (laughs) there is one thing you can do to remove yourself from under the gospel grace, right? And that one thing you can do is possess a condemning and disparaging and belittling spirit towards other people. Jesus is saying, in a way a child could understand, God will respond to you, your sins, your offenses, your shortcomings, in the same way you have responded to the sins, offenses, and shortcomings of others. Is there any other way to interpret this, y'all? I tried, right? There's some theological acrobats to make this not say what he's clearly saying because it doesn't make sense to me. What about the gospel? He said, if you don't judge others, you will not be judged. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. That's what he said, y'all. I'm not going to sit here and tell you something he didn't say. And there's something here that we have to sit with because on a quick reading, we might say, well, maybe he didn't mean that. You know, that seems very legalistic, does it not? It's kind of tit for tat, right? Kind of feels like an eye for an eye, doesn't it? Anyone else, right? What about the gospel? Doesn't this teaching make it seem like if you jump through this moral hoop, if you just forgive and, you know, don't judge, then all right, you're good. Doesn't it seem like that's what he's doing here, right? It's if-then language. It seems like a contract. If you do this, then I'll do this, right? I thought the gospel was covenant, right? No matter what we do, you're going to love and forgive, right? Isn't that what we believe? <laughs> How does this fit in to our theology, y'all? How does this teaching of Jesus land on you right now? Does it seem a bit unfair, Maybe even, maybe a little bit oppressive. He clearly said, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. He says, the measure you use, the standard with which, the measuring stick with which you look at other people will be the measuring stick I use with you. This is, first of all, audacious because he's claiming to be God in this moment. Did you guys catch that? Who on earth, what man could say this? What man could say, I don't, you know, right now, man. There's no getting around it, y'all. There's no theological acrobats. We can't say he really didn't mean that. And if we do, then you're being intellectually dishonest. He did mean it. And he did say it, right? He draws a hard line here. So the question is, as we explore this scripture, I want to answer the question, why does Jesus seem to lay down a rigid command And in many cases, depending on the context, a command that feels to us oppressive and even offensive. Now, why do I say oppressive and offensive? Well, just go ahead. Let's just do it. Go ahead and bring to mind that person. Maybe it's an ex-spouse, ex-friend, ex-manager. X-Man, Wolverine, I don't know, (laughs) who deeply hurt you, (laughs) who deeply betrayed you, violated your trust, abused you, 
committed injustice against you. Go ahead, bring them to mind. Who is it? That person that if you see in the grocery store, you hide. Go to a different aisle. I don't want to talk to that person. A jerk. That person from your past, maybe long past, who abused you, manipulated you, controlled you, deeply and profoundly hurt you. Go ahead and get them in your mind. In small group, someone was recounting a story of an old friend who had hurt them, and they said, it happened in broad daylight. Do you know what they meant by that? It was done openly. And it was done in a way that if anyone else saw it, they would have said, that is wrong. They have treated you wrongly. Who's that person? You got them? Someone comes up to you and says, just a matter of fact, without justification, if you don't forgive them, you won't be forgiven. Now, does that not feel slightly offensive and maybe a little oppressive? What are you talking? Who do you think you are? What do you mean? You don't know what they did. You don't know the abuses that they violated against me. How dare you say if I don't forgive them, I won't be forgiven, right? So why does Jesus demand this? And how can he speak about it so strictly? Well, two main reasons I want to submit to you as to why I think Jesus can request this of us. Why he can say, don't condemn others, and if you do, you will be condemned, right? And the first is this. We're going to sit with this scripture and then go to three other scriptures. But the first is this, and then in Luke 13. The second we'll see in Matthew 12 and 18. So let's start here with this text. Let's just sit with what he's saying, first of all. Let's look at it again. There's the first reason he says why sitting in the judgment seat and condemning others is off limits to his followers. He says this. First of all, uh, the way you judge is how you'll be judged, what we said over and over. If you condemn, you'll be condemned. If you forgive, you'll be forgiven, right? Whatever position you take towards your fellow man in terms of how harshly you judge them and condemn, he says that position is creating a cocktail of sorts. That's that language of pressed down and shaken together and running over. He says, your default of how you look at and think of and talk of other people is creating a cocktail, pressed down, shaken together. And that little version of personal justice that we'll just call your little cocktail, he said, that's going to spill over into your lap. And by that same measure, you will be measured. Whatever measuring stick you've been using to weigh others' values, condemn others as less than, that's the same stick I'm going to use with you. So if you've been harsh and punitive and dismissive and belittling with how you've handled others, God is saying that is how he's going to handle you. Is this not remarkable to anyone else and slightly jarring when we think about what we think of God and how we think of justice and mercy and the gospel. He says, if you've been merciful and forgiving, I'm going to be merciful. So just got to sit up with that for a while. Just reflect on that, right? Let that fit into your theology. But then he gives us two pictures for us to understand what's going on here, okay? And the first is a blind man claiming to lead another blind man. He says, can a blind man lead a blind where they're not both fall into a pit? It's kind of funny, But then it's also kind of sobering, right? He says, what does he mean by this? What is he talking about blind men leading blind men? Well, this is what he means. When it comes, this is why you shouldn't condemn others. When it comes to judging rightly, you are blind. That's what he's saying. Your 
version of justice and righteousness stumbles around in the dark. That's what he's saying. You don't have the wisdom to judge even the most simple things with the full knowledge that God has. Your face is too smudged against the stained glass window of time and experience and your single limited perspective to judge rightly. Therefore, any condemnation that you delve out to your fellow man is eternally premature. Hmm? Or inevitably hasty and short-sighted, okay? Your attempt, this is his first reason as to why you shouldn't do this. Your attempt to delve out righteous judgment in the universe is like a blind man leading the blind. It's just silly, right? Can you imagine a blind man walking in the room and saying, follow me? No, thanks, right? The other picture of the parable he gives of why you taking a position of judgment over someone else's is not a good thing is this hilarious image of a log sticking out of your eyeball, right? You got a speck, you see a speck in someone else's eye and you go to help them while you are not even aware that there's a log. It's comic, it's laughable. I just had some trees cut down in my yard and I've got massive logs sitting in the backyard and I just giggle when I look at them. You need to see the ridiculousness of the image that he's painting for us. He's saying, you're meant to laugh at this a little bit, right? He's saying, you are the least qualified person to judge and assess and evaluate your fellow men, right? Because you fixate on the tiniest little thing and can often be completely blind to the blatant and glaring blind spots of your own character. So the first reason he gives is is (laughs) self-awareness. This is why you shouldn't judge others. Just be self-aware, man. (laughs) Be aware that you have limited perspective. You have a limited and personal, most often, version of justice. You know, and he, he, he talks about this, you know, going to help them, right? He said, you, got, you go to help someone with a speck in their eye and when there's a log in yours and isn't in reality so often. The reason that we judge and condemn and manipulate and control is that we just want to help. Isn't that often the guys? Isn't that often how we justify all kinds of poor behavior? This person doesn't know what's right for them, so I'm going to help by imposing my will or maybe just voicing my judgment from a distance, right? Often our help, (laughs) y'all, has the convenient consequence of making us feel gracious and superior at the same time. It's often how we help. I'm going to help this poor idiot bless his heart. (laughs) Doesn't know his left hand from his right, right? And what would he do without my gracious opinion that I so freely offer, right? So often, right, we don't want to help with our patronizing and belittling attempts. So often what we really want to do is just make sure everyone else knows that I'm not a moron like this guy, right? Um, Judgment and condemnation, y'all, are often not the tools of establishing God's justice and righteousness, but rather are the tools of self-justification, So often, when we render our version of justice, what we're really doing is touting our own self-righteousness in a way that we want other people to know, right? In other words, very often, 
when you take a superior position towards other people and point out things, if you find yourself in repetitive and irresistible patterns of condescending attitudes, right, and gravitate towards others' shortcomings, very often that is how we hide. It's really what we're doing. We hide from God, we hide from others, and we even hide from ourselves because if the spotlight is on their ugliness, no one will see my own. So if in your heart of hearts, you find irresistible patterns of contemptuous attitudes and thinking towards other people that you think maybe be different than you and therefore less valuable than you, what are you so terrified that people will find out about you? And listen, I get it, man. I get it, right? I mean, this week, I have been constantly catching myself, just about to go into it, right? I mean, you can't go long at all without some well-meaning person inviting you to hold other persons in contempt. You can't, right? I don't really think we mean to do it, right? But it's the easiest thing in the world. It's like the daily low-hanging fruit of self-affirmation and self-justification, right? If you, if you want to feel smart, just talk about morons, right? If you want to feel morally superior, just point out everyone else's blind spots. So this is how it works, right? You're standing next to a stranger, and you, you don't want to be awkward. You want to have a conversation. You know, what can we talk about? Well, by his shirt, I bet he hates this political party. So let's talk about how stupid they are, right? This is what we do. Let's get a common bond going, right? It, same thing happened in Jesus' day, right? Did the same thing. Luke 13, dudes are standing around, and someone was looking for fuel either to hate the Romans or hate dumb people. And they said, hey, Jesus, aren't you from Galilee? Did you hear about those Galileans who were offering sacrifices and Pilate killed them in the middle of their worship? What's, the, what's that invitation there? That's the invitation to, hey, Jesus, isn't this wrong? Shouldn't we, some, shouldn't we pour some judgment on these guys? Their own blood mixed with sacrifices. This is in Luke 13, if you're looking. The guy's doing the same thing, right? The subtext of this conversation is either let's punish those dirty Romans who the dog Gentiles for the justice they deserve, or the subtext is, man, those Jews really must have been hiding some dirty sin from God for God to strike them dead right in the middle of their... Aren't we righteous, Jesus? That's the subtext of that whole... Either way, due to standing in judgment and condemnation over someone else, right? And what does Jesus say? You think they deserved wrath? <laughs> what about you? It's literally what Jesus says to him. And he's pointing out, this is so interesting in Luke 13. Is that 13, is that what I said? Yeah. Um, he's pointing out uh, that either by man, oh, he calls to their mind this tower that falls on other people. So you can, you can read it later. But he's pointing out whether by man-made violence or natural disaster, you should pause before you condemn or cast judgments on another saying that they rightly deserved it. That really is what he's getting at. Why? Because, here's what we're getting at. Why? why? Why should you pause, right? Because you've forgotten one of the fundamental truths of the universe. And that's this. It's very simple. It's, it's, it's gospel simple. It's, it's that it's broken. That the universe is broken, y'all. And see, that's not all that hard to see. What's hard to admit is that you are a part of that brokenness. And not just a part, but you've contributed to that brokenness. And he's just pointing out to them and to us that you've forgotten the gospel, that all have fallen short, you included. You were blind. That's gospel language, isn't it? Ever heard that song, Amazing Grace? How sweet it sound? I was blind, 
But now I see, isn't that part of the gospel, right? That your own fallenness and limited knowledge disqualifies you from rendering true and right judgment in the universe. There's only one person that can render right judgment. And the closer we get to him, the closer we get to judging rightly. So first reason Jesus gives, try to convince you, hey, refuse to judge, man. Just refuse. You're going to have to refuse. It's going to be really hard because your natural tendency, you just want to do it, right? But refuse to do it. Why? Be self-aware. Be self-aware. And maybe if we possess any amount of humility and self-awareness, we might be able to get on board with that. Okay, Jesus, maybe. I don't know if you have a point there. Maybe, right? Not totally convinced. I'm pretty awesome, you know, but okay, maybe, right? I might not be the most qualified person, but what if they deserve it? Like my friend said, what if it was done in broad daylight? What if what they are doing is really wrong? Like morally wrong, Jesus, and everyone knows it. Then don't we get a green light to condemn Jesus? Justice, right? There's two scriptures that come to mind that I want to lay before you why Jesus can say what he said today. And I think it's going to help us see what he meant and what he didn't mean. All right, it's Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. We're like, who cares? Well, it's the Sabbath. They really cared about that. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, that's what I imagine. Your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. They, I don't know. I'm just inserting my tone. I'm just figuring that, right? And it's just interesting to note that they are hovering so closely to these dudes that they notice this, right? Hovering, right? And you begin to get a, a feel for how the Pharisees thought of themselves, also how many Christians think of ourselves, which is the morality and theology police of the universe, right? Um, but before you paint a really harsh picture, you need to realize that these dudes were just trying to say, hey, y'all breaking the rules. I mean, how many of us are like, we're breaking the rules, right? I mean, we can relate to that, right? So he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him for how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priest. That's, he's quoting 1 Samuel 21. Or have you not read in the law on how the Sabbath priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. See, Jesus isn't saying the rules don't matter. He's saying he's better and greater than the rules. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So these are two audacious claims from Jesus. I have authority over the rules, I have authority over the temple, and I have authority over the Sabbath. These are divine claims, right? But he says this phrase, and this is what we need to sit with. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In fact, in Matthew 9, he says, go figure out what this means. Go, in other words, go chew on this for a while. Understand, comprehend this. Let it sink into your heart. I, God, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Just let it marinate for a second, y'all. What does is, what is God desire of you? Do you obey all the rules rigidly and strictly? Make the right sacrifices at the right church amongst the right people, singing the right songs, reading the right books? Huh? Is that what God requires? Does he require mercy? See, sacrifice 
can often be this internal, unrelated, disconnected thing we do at church, right? Go and sacrifice. I guess that's what we do. Mercy, and we think of it this way, right? Which way is mercy? It's this way. Mercy is how I talk to you, Josh. Mercy is how I treat you when I'm angry and hangry and tired and tangry and all the things. You know that one? You know that one? Those are real, all right? Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is eat a sandwich and take a nap. <laughs> Mercy is how you talk to people. I'm not even going to social media. All right, I'm not even going to do it. I did it enough last week, all right? He says, I desire relational compassion in my people, not legalistic, religious observance, which then, catch this, justifies your contempt for people who can't make the cut. I do this. I sacrifice this. Why can't you? Less valuable. You know what that's called? Condemnation. Is, is, is the justice of God religious sacrifice or is it extending compassion to those whom you, you have deemed undeserving? And if the cross is God's justice, then it is where justice and compassion meet. Like the psalmist says, it's where mercy and truth meet. So this is one step in our conversation, that Jesus desires we be people of compassion, perhaps over and above your self-established religious rightness. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And maybe we can understand this, right? But it doesn't relieve us of all of our protests when it comes to this teaching of Jesus, does it? Maybe the whole time I've been talking, you've been feeling this discomfort and tension. What if they deserve it, Chris, right? What if they are a danger to other people and to myself and to others, right? Are you telling me if I see a guy robbing an old lady, I shouldn't run him down and roundhouse kick him in the face? Now, if you know me, you know I'm a big fan of roundhouse kicking people in the face, all right? But what of the justice, right? What of the justice? There's two things here. Our struggle with this teaching is often that we see justice and mercy as mutually exclusive, don't we? When, G what? when, Je when Jesus says, have mercy, we say, what of justice, right? And they start thinking of this teaching in political structures and laws, okay? We chatting? Anyone else thought about this, right? And then we were saying, well, there's a lot about this, you know? Are we just off the hook, you know, from all that? And we just have to, you know, what's the deal, right? And I just have to simply remind you, Jesus is not giving legislative structural advice in this. He's telling you how the human heart either flourishes in life or shrivels up in death. And the means of his justice begin and end with the cross, not with political structures, okay? So you have to fit that in. Secondly, y'all, there is a very important distinction between discerning what is right and wrong in action and condemning a person as worthless, unfit, or lacking in value. There is a difference, isn't there? This is a very important distinction that we have to make at this point. Jesus is not saying never make any judgments, you know, I mean, if it like walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, we're not just saying, well, that's not a duck, <laughs> right? He's not saying don't make judgments. I mean, what if, 
evil people who aren't trustworthy. Are we just supposed to not be like, oh, yeah, it's fine. You took advantage of me last time. Take advantage of me again, right? Is this, in some ways, y'all, aren't we always making judgments? Aren't we always gauging and, and discerning situations and opportunities? You know what another word for judge is? Discern. Decide. Judge over these matters, right? Is Jesus saying don't ever decide anything, right? Are we, I mean, isn't scripture judge rightly? Didn't God set up a whole, isn't there a book called Judges, right? I mean, there's a, there's a whole structure in the whole thing, right? Aren't we supposed, it didn't Jesus, con, or God condemn people for not judging rightly? You don't know what your hand, left hand is your right hand, right? Zechariah 8, 16, 8, 16 commands us to judge with truth, right? So what is Jesus saying? This whole judge not lest you be judged, measure, right? Well, he also uses the word condemn. And that really helps us, I think. We define condemn as declare as unfit or worthless. See, a condemning attitude treats another as less than. So that begs this question. Is it possible to judge an action as wrong without condemning the person as worthless? Well, absolutely. I do it with my kids every day, all right? Right? Why? Because I love them. And I love them so much that when they do dumb things like play with fire or, you know, whatever, put their hand over, I don't know, what all the things that kids do, right? Playing, running the streets, you know? I say, hey, that action is really not, not good. We're not going to do that. I'm judging the action. Why am I judging the action? Because they are of more value to me than anything in the world. See, this is an example, if you have kids, of judgment and mercy working together. It is not... It is not me saying they aren't valuable as people. It's me saying they are worth so much value that I have to address this one issue, right? I have to address this thing. And because of my, what is the undergirding of that scenario? Deep love, instinctual, almost irresistible love I, that I can't resist, right? For my kids, a father's love to the children. That's the foundation of, of that. And I think Jesus' point is there is only one person who loves deeply enough, who sees fully enough to at the end separate the sheep from the goats, and it's not you. He doesn't mean we shouldn't see and discern and judge things rightly. He's saying you never call anyone worthless. We aren't the ones who decide if the salt has lost its saltiness and can only be thrown at. That is not your role as a Christian. Now, there is one called the accuser of the brethren. I don't think you want to do his job for him. Right? And our final protest to this teaching must be answered in this. The only reason this command to forgive, unless you be forgiven, right? Judge not, be right. The only reason this would seem unfair or oppressive to you is if you've overlooked or forgotten another fundamental truth of the gospel. That despite your shortcomings and blind spots and offenses, God has been and will be gracious, merciful, and forgiving to you in Christ. In Jesus' mind, God had already proven the depths and the length and the nature of his forgiveness and mercy, right? If God himself were not these things, 
then yes, it would be totally unfair. It would be totally harsh and cruel to demand we forgive those who don't deserve forgiveness and that we ourselves will be judged unless we forgive people that don't deserve forgiveness. But if the fundamental framework for the cosmos, right, is the assumption that God is overwhelmingly merciful and forgiving and he's extended that forgiveness to us, then it changes the whole way we look at this story. And it all lands in Matthew 18, when Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's millions, millions of dollars. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of compassion, out of mercy, he forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. KJV says 100 pence, pennies in comparison. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying... Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience. Identical story. It's identical. Have patience with me. Uh, and I will pay you 30. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they reported this to the master, that all that had taken place, the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's the same thing, same thing he's saying. He's just saying it in a picture that we can relate to a little bit more. See, if God had not first been overwhelmingly forgiven, forgiving, if God had not already acted and paid a debt you never could have paid, then yes, demand justice and don't give an inch in your heart to those who've wounded you. Demand justice, right? To those that owe you. That just makes sense in that framework. But if the framework of the cosmos is in the reality founded on God's selfless sacrifice to forgive and restore, then it changes everything. We have to approach the whole conversation quite differently, isn't it? Jesus is helping us understand what it looks like when we demand the hammer of justice for those who have wronged us. But if, if we were the ones that wounded the heart of the Father first, right, in a, in a way that we could never understand, if we were the ones who rejected his invitation over and over, shunned, ignored, right, used him, if we've participated in mutiny against the creator and he's forgiven us, if this is true, right, that he's forgiven us without demanding any repayment, then it changes the whole conversation. And all of a sudden, you read this very differently because then extending mercy just makes sense. It's the logical thing to do. And it all bundles down to a very simple statement that Jesus has said, you know, freely you have received, freely give, right? That's what it all bundles down to, right? If the fundamental assumption of the cosmos is the act of God to justify the unjust, to give worth and value to those who have dirtied themselves, then what Jesus is asking just makes sense, right? The teaching assumes that the gospel is true, 
and real. The question is for us, right? How does our treatment of other people, or rather, what does our treatment of other people say about whether or not we believe the truth of the gospel? I think there's clear implications for that. The question is not, guys, can you magically ignore people's sins as if they didn't hurt and wound you? The question is, has Jesus done what he said he did at the cross? And the question then will always be, what do you really believe about God? What do you really believe? Therefore, the answer is not to try harder, right? The answer is to have your eyes opened to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because only if we see him and what he's done, right, does Jesus' teaching like this ever make sense. Let me end with these two scriptures and we'll be out of here. It's very interesting. I love this about the Bible. The biblical narrative maintains that there is only one who has the ability to judge humanity. I'm going to read you two scriptures that, that prove this. Isaiah 11:1 1 says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Speaking of Jesus, in the narrative, the biblical narrative ends, right, with Jesus and Jesus alone having the power to release judgment on the wicked and evil and injustice in the earth. And it's seen in Revelations 5. Let me read it to you. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? What are the seals he's talking about? It's the seven seals of the judgment of God on the earth. And the apostle John is, is asking this question, or the angels at proclaiming, who is worthy to open judgment on the earth? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, from Isaiah 11, has conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slayed, slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was sitting on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowl, bowls full of incense, with the prayers, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth, under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and fell down and worshiped. You see, the results of God's justice and mercy meeting 
is wor- it, it calls for worship in us. We tracking? When Jesus judges the evilness of the earth in righteousness and equity, the result, worship. You know the result of your judgment? More judgment, more accusations, escalation of violence. You know the result of Jesus' judgment on the evil of the earth? Worship. We fall down and we say, you and you alone are worthy and can see all to judge in righteousness. Are you willing to step aside from your own perceived version of justice and trust that one day he will make all wrongs right? Isn't that what we're called to? Isn't that the invitation on the table to put down the hammer of justice and say, I trust you, Lord. What they've done is wrong. I've been abused. I've been violated. But I will trust you, God, that you will make all wrong right in the end. And the result of his judgment in the earth is worship. The result of your judgment in the earth, wrath, condemnation, violence, hatred, war. The invitation, y'all, So will you trust God and allow God to bring his justice that's mixed with mercy, right? Or will you exact your form of personal justice in the earth? Let's stand and pray.